Well, brothers and sisters, today we are officially kicking off our study of the book of Leviticus. Having myself been studying this book now for a few weeks in preparation, um, and even kind of looking ahead, even in the the months leading up to this, I I read through it a few months ago, um, I am thoroughly excited, um, and not just in a way that is drummed up so that you're excited to go through Leviticus. I am genuinely very, very excited to go through this book, and I think that it won't be long before we all come to appreciate the gospel richness of it. That being said, many of you will probably know that Leviticus has kind of a bad rap in some ways. Um, It can be a difficult book to preach through. Uh, If you're a new believer, I remember the first time I read through the book of Leviticus. I was like, oh man, let me just supplement this with Romans 8 after each chapter, right? How do I find nutrients out of this? Um, And it can be a difficult uh, book to preach through and even to do a sermon series through. Thank you, brother. In fact, I've often heard it, if someone's trying to think of like an example of a difficult book to preach through, Leviticus is the go-to. It's not like Leviticus or anything like that. Like it's kind of, it's known for being very difficult. On the one hand, it's, it's not hard to see why people might feel that way. It doesn't justify it, but it's not hard to see why someone might feel that way, and we should acknowledge there are indeed genuine difficulties and even some awkwardness with the book of Leviticus. For example, Leviticus is sometimes spoken of, I, I don't think fairly, um, but it's perceived as being boring. Or maybe just like really, really mundane, kind of pedantic. It goes through all kinds of instructions for clean and unclean. And to be fair, there are very few dramatic passages in Leviticus. Though there are some, and they are very dramatic, yet still they are few and far between. The whole of Leviticus is basically all instruction and law, and more, more than that, there is, we can even admit, a kind of mundaneness to it. It's very detailed and thorough, um, and for reasons which we'll explore later, but that's there. For example, there's instructions for what to do with a pot if a lizard, which is an unclean animal, if a lizard falls on a pot, right? Um, not necessarily easy to draw the application out of that right away. I like, to tell, I like to tell, you know, I say this to preachers. There, there are some passages in Scripture as a preacher, all you have to do is put on the T and just hit it. And it preaches itself, right? There's pa- Romans 8. Um, I said that about Ephesians uh, 2 when, when Josh did it. It's just like, just hit the thing and it's going to fly, right? Leviticus requires a little more work sometimes, <laughs> to show the application of the lizard pot situation. Um, and, and quite literally, if you're struggling, like you come to church, I, I need some encouragement today, and you're like, there's lizards and pots. I guarantee, though, there is some really good nutrients there, but we should acknowledge, yeah, there is kind of a, a very mundaneness to it, and there's a reason for it, but we acknowledge that that's there. Furthermore, there are some, if I dare say so, some awkward things in the book of Leviticus. There's a lot of discussion of sexual things. Bodily functions feature prominently, and it will indeed require some wisdom, not on my part, but especially for you parents, 
as we kind of go through all these things when we think of the children in our congregation. Um, my rule of thumb is stick to the word of Scripture and you'll be okay. And, and as long as we just use the words of Scripture, we need not be ashamed of that, right? Um, but those things are in the book, and I think that's another reason why churches and pastors tend to shy away from it. Lastly, there's things that are just kind of comical. We're going to read about bald men and whether they're clean or unclean. We'll finally learn whether Dennis and Jeremy are clean or unclean and, and when to know the difference. How can we cleanse them? Um, there's a lot of meme material from the book of Leviticus. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not hard to see why some people might, might think this is not a go-to book that I really want to hear a sermon series on. However, as we shall see, for all its minutia and detail, for all of its apparent awkwardness and even potentially comical content, I believe, brothers and sisters, I say this with my whole heart, I think we will fall in love with this book by the time we are done. I think we will find it to be a great gospel delight and joy to our souls because all of it, all, it, all of it comes down to one thing. If you want to know the big picture of Leviticus, this is it. We could just, we'll, we'll close up shop after I say this, okay? If you want to boil it down to one thing, it's simply life with God. Life with God. And life with God is by no means boring. In fact, I would argue that the reason for all the detail and minutiae is not because Leviticus is boring and pedantic, but rather because it looks at all of life, even pots and lizards, even the mundane, and asks, how ought an Israelite to live now that God dwells amongst them in the tabernacle? That's really the whole point. What does that require now that God lives amongst us? On the one hand, then, Leviticus confronts our sin everywhere, as we are reminded again and again that the God of the Bible is utterly pure, infinitely holy, completely other than we are. And in order for that God to dwell amongst us without consuming us, it's going to require a lot, a lot. Recall again the words of the Lord in Exodus 33, before he took the people back, after they broke his covenant. You are a stiff-necked people, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you for a single moment. Leviticus shows Israel what is now required, now that that blazingly holy God lives amongst them. In fact, although the name of the book of Leviticus might lead us to believe that this is a particularly priestly book, on the contrary, I would argue that in many ways, Leviticus is the field manual for the average Israelite. In fact, the Jews don't even call this book Leviticus. Leviticus comes from the Latin Vulgate, which comes from the Septuagint, Leviticon, which is a, re a reference to the Levitical priesthood, but the Jews simply call it Vayikra. Vayikra. And he called the first thing that that's how the book opens up, Vayikra. Kind of also, um, perhaps more than any other book of the Pentateuch, really shows a connection between what has just come before it with the establishment. It's almost just like narrative. And he said, that's how it starts. It just goes right over into Leviticus. And so, 
Although, for, for the Jews and for the book of Leviticus, the priesthood is indispensable, it's not a priestly book per se, at least not exclusively. It's very much for the average Israelite. In fact, for hundreds of years, it was and still is the practice that when young Jewish boys read the Torah, they start with Leviticus. Isn't that interesting? They don't start with Genesis. They don't even start with Exodus, which you might think is kind of important, right? They start with Leviticus. And I think part of that is because it shows the basic pattern of life before you understand all the reasons and rationales for everything. This is just really a basic field manual for Israelites all over the place. For us, however, in the New Covenant, Leviticus isn't just a picture of what is required in order to dwell with God. It doesn't just confront our sin, but rather, first and foremost, it shows us what Christ has accomplished, that we might now dwell with God. How He has made us holy unto the Lord. How He has purified and cleansed us from sin and uncleanness so that we can dwell with God beautiful picture, therefore, of the justifying, sanctifying effects of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Leviticus, perhaps like no other book in all of Scripture, yeah, I think we could say that, shows the great means by which Jesus accomplished his work. It shows the great means by which we are able to dwell with God, namely, by his blood. Again and again, as we'll see, the only way that God can dwell amongst a sinful people, the only way to make them holy, the only way to make them, uh, to wash them and make them clean is through the shedding of blood. Blood makes holy. Blood makes clean. Blood atones for sin. And without the shedding of blood, God cannot dwell amongst his people. In fact, the word blood itself occurs more times in the book of Leviticus than any other book in all the Bible. And the verb atone or to make atonement occurs more in the book of Leviticus than any other book of the Bible is all. All pointing to the absolute necessity for the atonement of sin in order for God to dwell amongst his people. Lastly, from this position of accomplishment that we enjoy in Christ, the book of Leviticus also enjoins us not just to receive Christ by faith and what he has accomplished, but also to press further into salvation, to press further into holiness since we've been made holy, to purge out and cleanse the sin which hangs onto us because we have been purged and cleansed by the blood of Christ. This is what Leviticus calls us to do. And so, as I said, I think by the time we are done, brothers and sisters, I think we are going to be in love with this book. Um, I don't think that's a stretch. I don't just say that because this is like what I do and, and I got to like drum up support. Um, I think there's some real gospel richness in this book. Well, having said all that, today uh, we're not going to jump straight into chapter one yet. Rather, as kind of an introduction to the book, I thought we would try to press further into some of the basic concepts that undergird the book of Leviticus, which will really give us a framework for understanding it in all of its fullness. Um, and what I'm referring to are particularly the concepts and categories of holy and common, 
on the one hand, and clean and unclean. Holy and common, clean and unclean. That's why I chose for our scripture reading Leviticus 10.10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. Now, I imagine that you guys have a pretty good working definition of those two categories, just given uh, your, your level of biblical knowledge that you have. And yet, I think we can go a little bit deeper into this, as we'll see, um, because although on the surface these categories are fairly simple, there is some nuance that has to be packed uh, in order to fully understand their significance, uh, I think. Um, and I think we often kind of get a piece here or a piece there, but we don't really fully, at least myself, I had to grow in, in kind of seeing how it's all related together. Um, and so we want to look into that a little bit more dip, deeply. Uh, we want to ask questions. Why did God give these categories? Why did God give clean and unclean and not just holy and common? Like, why those two? Why not just make everything on a spectrum of holy and common? Why the two different categories? What is God trying to teach them? What is he trying to teach us? And how does all this highlight um, the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ? We want to ask all those questions. Now, if you look on your order of service, I made a crazy chart, and I blame Jason because I think he uses a Mac. No, it got a little messed up. The yellow doesn't quite pop out. Okay, look, see this like extra black box? That shouldn't be there. Don't look at that. You could just fold this over, and then all you have is the golden holy box, okay? Like that, okay? See how nice that is? Again, blame Jason. Just kidding. Jason printed it. He was being very sweet because I was running late. Um, I made that to try to get at all the nuances of holy and common and clean and unclean. Um, I went through several versions of this, <laughs> and this is not actually the most complicated version that I made. It was much more complicated, and I realized, like, no one's going to understand what I'm talking about. Um, and I try to explain everything and walk through it with Annika, and, and it was, yeah. Um, but we will look at that, and so bear with me. Um, there's a lot, a lot to unpack there. Well, let's go ahead and dive into these two categories, and then at the end we'll, we'll come back for some application. So again, Leviticus 10.10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. These two categories, holy and common and clean and unclean, were fundamental categories which undergirded all of life in Israel. When you woke up in the morning, as you went about your day, before you went to bed at night, you would encounter in all kinds of ways the distinction on the one hand between holy and common and clean or unclean. It would affect your decisions throughout the day, how you prepared your food, perhaps the route you took to specific locations, physical contact between husband and wife, um, all the animal life around you. Indeed, it's not a stretch to say that all of life was a matter of holy and common and clean and unclean. In one way or another, all of life fits in those two categories. Here we should ask, how were these categories to be understood? 
If you told an Israelite that something was common, or if you said that something was clean, what kind of thoughts, what kind of feelings or ideas might that conjure up inside them? When you said, no, something is unclean, I am unclean, how should that have been understood? And more than all of this, what was God's purpose with these categories? What was he trying to teach them? And what is he trying to teach us by extension? Well, let's begin with the first category mentioned in Leviticus 10.10, namely the difference between the holy, or in Hebrew, hakodesh, hakodesh, and the common, hachol, hachol. You've got to get the phlegm going there. Holy and the common. If you look at the diagram on the order of service, you can see that in a certain sense, this is an overarching category to some degree. Um, everything in Israel is in one way or another either holy or common. As far as the difference between the two, in Scripture, that which is holy is that which comes into contact with God who is himself holiness. That which does not come into contact with God is common. It all has to do with nearness to God. In this sense, holy means not just morally pure, but separate and set apart for special use. Well, that which is common has not been set apart for any special reason, and in that sense, it lacks holiness. It lacks a special separateness. In the broadest sense, all of Israel, whether the people or the land, all of it is holy to the Lord because God has set it apart. The people were set apart from the other peoples and from the other nations, and the land had a special place, uh, is a special place that is set apart from the other lands around them. They are holy. Why? Well, because that's where God dwells, and He dwells amongst those people. Therefore, they are holy. In a more limited sense, however, even with Israel, only those things which come in direct contact with God are holiness, are holy. And indeed, the closer you come to God, the more holy things become. There is the most holy place in the tabernacle, literally the holy of holies or the sanctuary of sanctuaries. This is the most holy place. Why? Because it has the most direct contact with God. That's where Yahweh sits enthroned above the cherubim. Outside of this is the holy place, or simply HaKodesh, or the sanctuary. Then outside of that, still within the courtyard, this is also called the holy place. Not really the sanctuary, but quite literally in Hebrew, the holy place. So for example, we're told in Leviticus 6.26 about the meat from the sin offering. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. So we see even there, there's, there's degrees of holiness depending on the nearness, the levels of nearness to God. There are therefore uh, degrees in holiness in terms of priests. The high priest has more holiness. Why? Because he's the one who goes even closer, even nearer on behalf of Israel. Furthermore, all the things within this holy place are themselves holy so we read just a few weeks ago, God tells Moses in Exodus 40, verse 9, you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. 
And yet, even here with these objects, there's levels of holiness. Some things are more holy than others. Exodus 40, verse 10, You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. Interestingly, with holiness and with uncleanness, um, it's kind of contagious. And I don't mean that in like a pastoral application kind of way. It's transmissible. It spreads. So, for example, we read of the sin offering, which is holy because it goes on the altar. Leviticus 6.27, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. So if something that was maybe not necessarily designated as holy, if it accidentally touched it, that's now holy. It can, it can transmit to other things. My favorite example of this is from Numbers 16. In what is referred to as Korah's rebellion. Korah was a Levite who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and God consumed him and his fellow rebels with fire. At the time when God consumed them, they were burning incense with golden, uh, golden censers. And it says in Numbers 16, And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as the covering for the altar, for they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Kind of funny. You would think maybe those things became unclean, right? Kind of maybe like the, the golden calf. It's, that, that doesn't, that's like unusable. It's ground up, right? It's just, it's spread. Um, these become holy. Why? Because the fire of God touched them. And so again, um, anything that comes in direct contact, and there's even this transmissibility between holiness. Opposed to holy, you have that which is common, or chol in Hebrew. Chol is somewhat more of a difficult concept to grasp. On the one hand, depending on the, con on the context, it can be best translated as common. Not, uh, simply meaning not set apart or holy. It doesn't necessarily have any negative connotations. It's not bad. It's just not holy. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 21, when David is on the run from Saul, they arrive at the tabernacle. He asks the priest for supplies if they have anything. The priest says to David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. Holy bread is referring to the bread of the presence, which would indeed be holy. Why? Because it's inside the tabernacle. Again, it's close to the Lord. But he says he doesn't have any common bread. There's no really negative connotations. It's not like it's unclean. First of all, a priest, a Jewish priest, wouldn't have unclean bread in the first place. He means it's just not holy. It's not bad. It's just normal. And often that's a good translation of it. On the other hand... This is where things get trickier. The Hebrew word chol, in many cases, is better translated not as common or normal, but as that which is profaned or even defiled in a very, very negative sense. In fact, the word chol comes from halal, which means to profane something or to defile it. <coughs> Furthermore, 
Just as the category of holiness often has moral undertones to it, so often does the term chol in many occasions. It often has a negative moral quality. Furthermore, it's not just to treat something holy as if it's common. That's one way you can defile something, right? You're not to treat the holy name of the Lord as common because it's holy. But at other times it goes farther than that as though you're treating something common and defiling it. For example, Leviticus 19.29, Do not profane chalal your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. There, it's not talking about the daughter of a priest who was holy, but the average Israelite daughter who is more along the lines of common, and yet to commit such a sin is said to be profaning her. It's, not, it's the idea of not just ceremonial defilement, but it often has moral undertones as well. So all that to say, the idea of common is sometimes more along the lines of, of normal, maybe neutral, we might say, not necessarily bad, maybe even good, just not holy. At other times, it's more along the lines of profane or defiled. And we'll explore a little bit more of that later. I think there's a reason for that. Well, that's the first category, holy and common. Next, we have the category of clean and unclean. And let me just clarify something. If you look at the diagram of the order of service, you can see that the categories of clean and unclean are are almost treated as subcategories of holy and common, right? Under holy, you have clean and unclean, and under common, you have clean and unclean. Oh, man, that got so messed up through... Anyway... I'll send another version later (laughs) that will make more sense. Um, But they kind of look like subcategories there. Um, I did that to show that holy things at times can become, they can either be clean and in some cases unclean, and common things can be clean or unclean, but they're best not understood as subcategories of holy and common. Um, It's kind of its own category. And one way to think of it, um, it's interesting because one commentary I read Uh, a good commentary, he said that clean and unclean are subcategories of common. The problem with that is things that are holy can also be clean, and in some cases they can also become unclean. Though they can't, so priests who are holy can become unclean, but they don't lose their status of holiness. So it's better to see these as two overlapping parallel categories. On the one hand, everything in Israel can fit into the categories of holy and common, and everything can fit into clean and unclean. And sometimes they come into contact, but not always, okay? So we'll, we'll get at that more as, as we look. Um, okay, now clean is the word tahor in Hebrew. It literally means clean or pure. Pretty simple. English is a good translation there. Unclean is really simply just the opposite. It means unclean, maybe kind of dirty, defiled, as opposite of clean. It's the Hebrew word tameh. On the one hand, there are not really any inherent moral connotations behind the categories of clean and unclean. To put it another way, it was not inherently sinful to be unclean any more than it was inherently morally pure to be clean. In fact, every Israelite would have been unclean 
on a fairly regular basis in their lifetime. If you had just given birth to a child, I'm not trying to pick on Elizabeth, you would be unclean for a period of time. If you accidentally touched a dead animal, let's say you're working out in the field, you didn't see it, there's a dead animal and you touch it with your foot, you're now unclean, right? You didn't mean to do anything. There, wasn't, there was no uh, evil thing about what you just, you just did inherently, but you became unclean. Um, anytime that a, a husband and wife came together, they would, for at least until the evening, become unclean. So there's many ways in which you couldn't fulfill all the commands of Yahweh. You couldn't be even fruitful and multiplying without somehow becoming unclean. In fact, I would say um, that even our Lord Christ would have been ceremonially unclean at various times in his life, um, and yet he was, he was holy and pure. Um, if he ever had to bury someone or prepare them for burial, if Joseph died, he as the firstborn would surely be involved in that and carrying around his corpse and preparing it. He would be unclean while he touched that. Um, and so there's nothing inherently morally sinful about being unclean. On the other hand, uncleanness is associated with sin and even moral defilement in some, to some extent. We see this in several ways. For example, in many cases, in order to cleanse someone of their uncleanness, not their commonness, but their uncleanness, Often a sin offering is necessary, and they are even said to need atonement for their, unforgive, for their uncleanness to be cleaned. So, for example, for a woman who had just given birth, it says in Leviticus 12.8, and if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. It's a very interesting phrase. Listen to that. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. That's interesting because the other thing that that sounds like is where it says, and the priest shall make atonement, and he shall be forgiven. Kind of very similar. Clean, being forgiven, making atonement. It kind of all goes together. The reason for this, I believe is that clean and unclean, in many ways, point to the same thing as holy and common. Namely, holiness on the one hand and sin on the other. They typologically point to those things. That's why there's nothing inherently sinful about being unclean, because it's only a type. It's not the thing pointed to. Yet there is something typologically significant about being unclean. It's not a state that you are to be in. In fact, elsewhere we read that if you, you realize you are unclean and you don't do what you can to become unclean, I think you can become cut off from Israel. It's a state to be avoided, although technically it's not inherently sinful. And I think the reason is, is because it's a picture of sin, right? Uncleanness, in many ways, uh, throughout Scripture, is associated with sin, for example, listen to Ecclesiastes 9.2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, 
to him who sacrifices and who, who, who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. There, uncleanness is, is associated with the wicked and the evil and the sinner, right? And I think it's because there's a picture. Furthermore, throughout the Psalms and the prophets, they are full of language which equates washing and cleanness with being forgiven of one's sins or, or, or of being morally pure. For example, we read today Psalm 51.12, or we didn't read this, I'm sorry, but Psalm 51.12, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's the same verb used to describe cleansing people who are unclean. Furthermore, there's a very interesting connection between holiness and cleanness. And I, I tried to make this apparent... Maybe in good lighting you can see this. You see, I put like a little line between holy and clean. It's like golden, but it's kind of faint. Do you see that? And then over here, I put another line between common and unclean. Those two things are related. Holiness is related to cleanness, and commonness is related to uncleanness. They're not the same thing. They don't entirely overlap, and yet they are very much related in fact, at times, um, or in fact, one way to see this, it, turn with me to Leviticus 21. This is very interesting. Leviticus 21, verses 1 through 3. Leviticus 21, 1 through 3. And the Lord said to Moses... Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his father, his mother, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. There, because the Levites are generally holy as compared to the other tribes, which are more along the lines of common, there are certain kind of ways that they are not allowed to become unclean, which the average Israelite was. Um, for example, in the following verse, I cut it out there. Um, I think, I think a Levite could not bury his dead wife. I think it says that. I think it says he is not a, a, something about to be a husband or something. Um, they could do it to the most immediate blood relatives, right? Um, but those restrictions did not exist for an average Israelite. You could bear, bury maybe your cousin. But if you're a priest, you're holy, and there are, certain, there, there are therefore certain ways which you can't become unclean anymore. They are now off limits. Interestingly, if you look in the same chapter down at verses 10 through 11, it says of the high priest who is even more holy, it says, the priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose, the head, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. So because he's even more holy, he's held to a higher standard of cleanness. So you see this, this connection between cleanness and holiness. They're, they're not the same thing, but they're related, right? In fact, sometimes in Scripture, 
Cleanness is called holiness. For example, with David and the showbread, the holy bread, the priest says, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. He's talking about sexual intercourse because that did make you unclean. So he says, I'm not going to give you the holy bread if you are unclean. If you're clean ceremonially, ceremonially, you can have the bread. David then says something interesting. Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young man are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. You can read all the commentaries you want, and they're all going to say what David is talking about is that they are clean, though he uses the term holiness. So even there, cleanness is a kind of holiness in a certain sense. It's Maybe one way to put this is it's a lay holiness to some degree. Interestingly, to be common is sometimes often, though not, not, exclusive, not exclusively, but often it is associated with uncleanness. Just as cleanness is associated with holy, they're even called the same thing, sometimes common can just be, it, it can refer to that which is unclean. So, for example, turn with me to the, to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Acts, chapter 10. Here, Peter is being given the vision to rise up and kill and eat the unclean animals. He's about to go to Cornelius, verses 15, uh, 14 through 15. says, but Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And when he says common or unclean, he doesn't mean common as opposed to unclean. Because that, that doesn't make any sense, because even things that are clean can be common, right? And of course, he's eaten common things that are clean. But that's not how he uses it. Rather, he means common and clean, like they kind of go together, right? Um, we see this, for example, in God's response to him. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. By calling them common, Peter was basically calling them unclean. God says, don't do that. They're not common uh, or unclean, they are clean, implying there's a connection. Um, to, be, to be unclean is somehow associated with common, just as clean is associated with holiness. This is why, if, again, if you look at the diagram I made, you can't really see it, um, but I do have like a little black line connecting common and unclean, and there is a little golden line collecting, uh, connecting holy and clean. Nevertheless, nevertheless, some things that are holy, as we've seen with the priests, they can become unclean under certain circumstances. So if you see, um, well, you can't totally see it, the box of unclean, there is a box of unclean underneath holy, though it is smaller, because there are less ways that they can become unclean. But priests could become unclean and still retain their holiness. They couldn't serve in their priestly functions as they were unclean. In fact, if you were unclean and you tried to do that, 
That's the quickest way to get cut off from Israel. Um, unclean and holy are never to meet. Something that is holy can become unclean, but if something is unclean, it is never to approach the holy. It will always be cut off. So, for example, um, Leviticus 22.4, none of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. So if you're unclean, even though you're a Levite, you can't eat because unclean never touches holy, though sometimes something which is holy can become unclean and it has to become clean before it can serve for special use as holy, okay? Furthermore, there are some things um, which themselves don't become unclean, but they still need to be cleansed from the uncleanness of others. So, for example, this is true of the tabernacle. Although it never can become unclean because it's so holy, it still has to be cleansed from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So Leviticus 16.16 says on the Day of Atonement, Thus the priest shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So some things which are holy, they don't become unclean, but they still need to be cleansed in a certain sense. Well, as far as the difference between holy and common and clean and unclean, we can see there's a lot of parallels, but they're not exactly the same thing. One way that a professor described it to me, and I, I think it's been helpful, is he says, holiness is a status. Some things have the status of holiness. A priest, a tribe, even an object has a status. Clean and unclean is a state. You can have the status of holiness and yet be in a state of uncleanness, though you're really to avoid uncleanness in some ways even more than someone who is common. So one is a state of clean and unclean are a state, and holiness especially is a status. Now think with me for a minute. I kind of trying to think about this. Why would God have these two different categories? Why not just have everything on a continuum of holiness, right? God is the most holy. As you go all the way out, um, this is most holy, this is holy, this is slightly less holy. Why not, why not do that? Why have these two categories that are kind of the same thing, right? Kind of overlapping. Cleanness is a picture of holiness, so why not just make it all one big category? I think there are several reasons for this. First, I think it would be really hard to make all the distinctions on one long continuum of holy. Um, you would have something that is less holy, slightly less holy. There's like, you know, like mostly dead. You're mostly holy, but you're not entirely holy. There's most holy. And I think you would kind of lose a lot of the picture of, of holiness and common, commonness. Furthermore, if there were only the category of holy, holy and common... Perhaps some of the priests might think of themselves as inherently more holy than others, and yet they also can become unclean. They too, even though they are holy unto the Lord, they have that status, they have to avoid uncleanness, and so they themselves are still infected with sin. Sin still confronts them. God's presence still makes demands of them, though they have the status of holy. Or for the average Israelite, they might think to themselves, well, 
you know, holiness because God dwells here, that's something that the Levites do. I'm just common. I don't have to worry about that. No, no, no. You may be common. You may not be holy in the sense that they are, but God's presence still makes demands of you. And you must be clean or you cannot enter into his tabernacle and bring your sacrifices. So I think that having these two related categories allows God to really express and teach kind of the same concept in, in a very full way to all the different kinds of people in Israel. And, and the main lesson is this. God's presence makes demands of everyone. Priest, layman. High priest, lower priest. Everyone in Israel, from the lowest person of the smallest clan of the smallest tribe, God's holiness and his presence makes demands of them just as much of the high priest of Israel. I think that's the reason why there are two categories. In closing, brothers and sisters, let me just say that by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been made holy and you have been washed clean. At one time, you were defiled. You were whole. You were profane. You could not enter into his holy presence. You would be put to death. He would consume you. You were also unclean. You were filthy. You were covered in the filthy garments of your sin. Furthermore, you could not wash it off by your external actions. In fact, the works of the unregenerate just add to their filthiness. It's very interesting. The Lord says in the book of Jeremiah, he says to the tribe of Judah, though you wash yourself with much lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. In other words, you can't get the kind of cleanness needed to actually dwell in the presence of God. Only that can be given and provided by the Lord. We couldn't make it by our own works. And yet, brothers and sisters, Christ took us. He washed us. He purged us. He cleansed us. We, earlier in our assurance of forgiveness, in our order of service, we saw Paul. I don't think I read that. No. We didn't read, we didn't read that for the assurance of forgiveness. I must have changed my mind as I was writing the order of service. Paul says to the Corinthians, after mentioning all kinds of unrighteousness and wickedness, and, and we all know the church of Corinth, there were some things in Corinth. There were Christians sleeping with prostitutes. Okay? That's like really, really, really bad and wicked and filthy in the congregation. And you wonder, how, how can these people be called saints? And yet Paul says, after listing all this wickedness, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's interesting, we'll see. The two most common things, and they're often used together for forgiveness and cleanness in the book of Leviticus, are water and blood. Water and blood. They often go together. They connect both to holy and clean, I think. Just as clean is a picture of holiness, so also washing with water, even baptism, 
is a picture of the purifying, cleansing effects of the blood of Christ. And so when Christ died, John tells us that his side was pierced, and at once there came out blood and water. John later says in 1 John 5, 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Indeed, just as baptism into water is a picture of the washing away of our sins, so also it is a washing by the blood of Christ. When you step down into the water, you're stepping into a fountain, into a pool of the cleansing blood of Christ. Therefore, John says in Revelation 7, 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Christian, you've been washed the water and the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been justified, clothed with spotless righteousness. Even internally, you are being cleansed and your sin is being purged. You know, as we've read, been reading through John Davenant, he responds to a lot of uh, Romanist critiques of Protestant doctrine. And one that was common then, and it's still very commonly found today, is, is they'll say that Protestants teach that sin is merely covered. There's just a cover thrown over sin, yet nothing changes on the inside. No change takes place whatsoever. Um, and so you can just keep on going, great, your sin's just covered now, right? Like if, if your kid made a mess, you just throw something over it. Now the problem's taken care of. That's what they say um, Protestants teach. He explains, we in no ways teach that sin is merely covered, though it is covered with the righteousness of Christ. He says, we affirm with Scripture that sin is crucified and mortified in all the truly justified, and the evil root of sin itself is broken, bruised, and cut into pieces. And moreover, that another root of spiritual righteousness and holiness in the soul of the justified has been implanted. Our sin is covered by the righteousness of Christ so that the wrath of God may not fall upon us. But the same blood which justifies also purifies. And it has planted holiness within the soul of the Christian. Therefore, God calls us holy. Not just because we've been justified, that we have been, or because we are free from all internal sin, because we are not, but rather because God has truly given us a new holy nature, clean, pure. And though sin remains, it cleaves, it does not reign in the Christian. Rather, it has been put to death. Christian, you who struggle with your sin, perhaps as you hear these words, your conscience may be defiled. It may be defiled by the ways you sinned this past week. Perhaps there's even the sense of uncleanness and dirtiness. If people only saw my sin, they would, they would, be, they would be so aghast. There'd be so much shame in my soul. But you're clean. You're washed. You're pure by the blood of Christ you might say, but God hates sin. And one sin is enough to damn me to hell. Amen. 
John Davenant explains, We readily admit then that God hates the sin that remains, and that he shows his hatred by daily lessening and at length eradicating them by his grace and his spirit. But he does not hate the person to whom they cleave, because Christ by his blood has expiated their guilt. Christian, you've been washed by the blood of Christ, and you are continuing to be washed by his blood. He has cleansed you, and he is still cleansing you. Therefore, seek holiness. Press in to holiness. Look at the sin in your heart as uncleanness. Just as something is dirty and gross, look at your sin that way and seek to be clean of it by the power of the Spirit. Put it to death so that there is no area of uncleanness in all your life. Just as God's tabernacle dwelling in Israel made demands over all the land and in all people, God's Spirit dwelling in your heart makes demands over all your soul and your body. It's to be free from uncleanness. It is to be holy. Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In due time, Christian, the same powerful blood which washed away the stains of your guilt will also cleanse and sanctify you inwardly as well. Do not despair. That's the hope of the book of Leviticus, brothers and sisters. There's some mundaneness to it, but oh, it's all just about the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it all points to. And so I think that by the time we are done, this will be a, a very dear book to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, you are clean, you are pure, you dwell in unapproachable light, and yet by the blood of Christ we can enter into that light, we can enter into your presence to offer thanksgiving and praises and prayers. We thank you for sending your son, God. God, how merciful you were to us. How complete a salvation. How thorough and full the riches of Christ. Oh God, would you help us to behold by faith all that Christ has accomplished for us. Would you help us to stand steadfastly in it and to not be moved to the right or to the left. Would you help us to give no place to those who would put us under a yoke of bondage, Lord, but to stand in all the liberty that Christ has won for us? Would you also help us, Lord, to be freer and freer from sin? Since true liberty consists not in the freedom to sin or not to sin, but true freedom is holiness. Oh, Father, would you cause our, our hearts to yearn, to desire the great food of holiness, God? Would you make us more and more like you? I pray, God, as we go through this book, 
you would be cleansing and sanctifying us, Father. Oh God, make us holy. I pray as we go through this book, Lord, that sins that have been, uh, that have been around for years would finally be mortified. I pray that, that areas of our heart that we have not yet seen in which we've been sinning, that you would expose those, that we might repent, that we would press on into holiness, God. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus.